Hi, I'm Anil Dash, and you're in for a special treat. This is a bonus episode of Function. All season long in Function, we've been wrangling with this question of trust on the internet and in technology in general. And the basic question we're asking is, can we trust the role the technology has in our lives? Well, we wanted to go deep on that topic, and in the middle of this season, I actually went to the Texas Tribune Festival. Now, this festival is one of the biggest gatherings in the country that is just about conversation about politics and policy, and we decided to focus real specifically on the kind of policy changes that need to happen if we're going to have tech be accountable to all of us. For this conversation, we pulled together four academics who study four completely different areas of the ways that social media impacts the world. First up is Sarah Roberts. She's an assistant professor of information studies at UCLA. And she knows pretty much every aspect of social media, but her most recent book is called Behind the Screen. And it's about the content moderators, the people that work to actually try and keep the social networks, well, civilized. She talked to the people who do that work, who clean up after us, who clean up after the worst actors on the internet, And that perspective really informs a deep understanding of how social media looks behind the scenes. Next up is Charlton McElwain. He's a professor at NYU for media, culture, and communications, and he's also a vice provost there. He's written a ton about how social media impacts the world, but what's most striking to me is his most recent book called Black Software. Starting from a perspective of his father, who was the first black engineer at IBM, He's been able to carry forward that connection all the way into the latest evolutions of social media. We also got one of my favorite writers, Anne Helen Peterson. She's a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed News, and her newest book is about millennial burnout. But really, everything she writes is about perspectives and voices of people who are often overlooked. I love that perspective she brings to thinking about those who get erased in our conversations of social media. And finally, there's Shiva Vaidyanathan. Shiva is a professor. He's the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. And he's written a whole bunch of books over the years, but his most recent, Anti-Social Media, was one of the most direct and forceful criticisms of Facebook's role in really undermining democracy. That pointed perspective, I think, makes this conversation go to a whole nother level. All four of these people bring really unique perspectives to a conversation about social media. They go places that pretty much nobody else could, And to get them all on stage together was a really special moment. You're going to hear that in this conversation, especially because the entire audience was super, super engaged. Take a listen. I will start with a question for each of you, which I think is usually how these things wrap up, which is the, you know, your one takeaway. But I think about each of you have stories you tell and particular detail that when you get a chance to talk to a room full of smart people like this, help them crystallize and understand um, the work that you do, but also if you could represent the one perspective of somebody that might not be in this room. Um, So I'm going to start, Sarah T. Roberts, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'd love for you to start with one of those stories that's come out of your work and the people that you get to talk to. So uh, the crux of my work has to do with unveiling the ecosystem behind the technologies that often appear uh, immaterial and uh, otherworldly. And I think if if I had to say the one takeaway from the, the years of that work is that 
the internet and the technologies we use every day are fundamentally human constructs. And uh, they're often uh, even more closely <laughs> aligned to human labor than even just that. Uh, the things that we presume or assume to be computational are often uh, human processes. And even when they are computerized, they are reflecting those, those human uh, norms and positions. So we might have a problem that we feel technology is introducing into our lives or software is introducing into our lives, but the solution is not going to lie and write some more code if you're at Facebook, if you're at Google, and solve this problem. Um, I mean, that's where I differ from my colleagues mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley because <laughs> they, they often do believe that that is the mm. solution. But uh, I think that that actually underscores a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of the problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to get to here is we are going to presuppose in the conversation today that there are stresses around the presence of technology in all of our lives. We're, I'm not going to do a lot for asking um, these folks to justify that we sometimes feel creeped out by technology or that we sometimes feel uncomfortable with our, its impact on our lives and our work. We're going to assume that. So hopefully you can come with us on that journey. Charlton, I go to sort of your work in, I think, giving a historical context, but also talking about voices and communities that often get overlooked. I'd love for, for you to sort of you know, give us one of those stories that people don't often hear. Sure, and it's, you know, it's a hard question because I have about you know, 50 that I want to jump out <laughs> at. Oh, we'll get to them. Tell, so. yeah. <laughs> but I think I'll start with the, it's a guy named Derek Brown. He's a guy I met uh, early in my research for this uh, book. Derek Brown is an uh, African-American engineer, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, went to school at Clemson, Georgia Tech. In 1994, and I'm thinking about my own age at the time, being in a doctoral program, and my connection with computing was playing free cell, uh, those <laughs> of you that are similar in age. So that was the extent of mine. And so when I discovered Derek, I realized that people in 1994 were using technology to do some very, very cool things that I had no idea. And what I got from Derek, who built a site called the Universal Black Pages, 1994, 1995, 1996. And he would talk to me about just the, he'd talk about the, the web, the internet, computers as something beautiful. And it was beautiful because it enabled him to connect to people, connect to his people. And so I think when you think about community, connection, and the possibilities of what our present-day internet could be. I think we've been where we could still become uh, again someday. Hmm. So it's so interesting because we do think about the stresses and the tensions, but also our narrative is really basically shaped around half a dozen big companies and not an individual creator, not these sort of, you know, maybe voices that get overlooked, but also the idea that it can be grounded in traditions that echo what we see in a physical community, what we see in a church, what we see in a community center. Does it seem to connect into traditions that, that existed long before the internet? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's, you know, that was people's frames of reference. And even if they were on this thing, it was to connect to the people they knew, hung out with uh, in so-called real life. Uh, <laughs> so it was about that connection. It was about doing for each other. Mm. So, Anne Helen Peterson, I find your work sort of echoes in a similar way that there are people whose stories are told about them but not by them. And, and so, so many times you give voice to them, and whether that is because of where they are geographically or demographically, it seems like that's an underpinning to what you're doing. I'm curious about if you have a sort of, you know, a galvanizing story that you've found in, in your work that, that crystallizes that idea for people. 
Well, a story that I heard again and again and also experienced myself, which um, is kind of a culmination of going through, I went to UT to get my PhD. I worked so, so, so hard to try to get an academic job, was in academia for a while and then went into journalism and just like was working so hard all the time. All I wanted was a cool job that would pay me money um, and have- <laughs> Don't we all? And have health insurance, right? And allow me to make my student loan payment. Um, but what I found, and this is what my most recent work is on burnout, is that I would end each night in bed just doing like this aimless scroll through Instagram. And you look up and you're like, what am I looking at? I used to read before I went to bed. I used to like watch a bunch of episodes of a television show. I did things intentionally. But instead I said, I'm, t I'm too tired to even put down this, my, the app and do what I actually want to do. And so many people have told me that they've had similar experiences in terms of why can't I just not, like I don't want to be on Facebook, I don't want to be on Twitter, I don't want to be on Instagram, and yet here I am. What is going on? Why can't I do the thing that I actually want to do that would make me less burnt out? And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about both what are the mechanisms in place that make it very difficult to put down your endless scroll on Instagram, but also what are the things that make us so exhausted that we don't have the energy not or to be able to put it down. So it's so interesting that sort of rerouting of intention into something that almost happens to you yeah. as opposed to something that you're choosing. Yeah, totally. So Siva, you have looked very deeply at um, a lot of different companies' roles in this, but particularly Facebook, which obviously one of the biggest companies in the history of the world, one of the biggest companies on the internet, owns a lot of the platforms we use. There's, I think there's a pretty broad understanding of like, they're doing some stuff that we don't trust, that we don't feel good about. I think they'd even concede that at this point. Um, but you've gone so much deeper into understanding how they came to be what they are and what their sort of influences on the system overall. While we don't want to over-index on talking about one company or anything like that, I'm curious if there's a story that, that illustrates what you've found there that people might not be as familiar with. Well, my story is uh, speculative fiction or maybe science fiction. So imagine if uh, we all grew up in a country where the only real access to any traditional familiar media form is AM radio, and all of the AM radio is controlled by the government. So imagine that, that you didn't grow up in a world with newspapers and magazines and television networks and MTV and, um, and even the World Wide Web, right? You, you basically have AM radio and that's it. And then about five years ago, suddenly you get access to smartphones. You were able to uh, get an Android phone or even an iPhone if you have the money, and, and now, you have this amazing fire hose of images and sounds and text coming through to you. And it's all coming through to you governed by a company that happens to control Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, which is Facebook, where it controls all three of these things. Imagine what our society would be like. Imagine how much of what Annie's been feeling and describing, right? This, wait, I used to think about other things. I used to do other things, right? At least you have the capability to do that. If in this speculative world, you didn't have that reference, right? Your entire consciousness, your political consciousness, social consciousness, religious consciousness, ethnic consciousness would be dictated by whatever is being amplified by Facebook's algorithms. Well, I said it was speculative fiction or science fiction. It's actually what just happened in Myanmar. In Myanmar in 2014, 
uh, people went from a situation that was media poor, about as media poor as any place in the world, to a place that is media rich, but specifically guided by Facebook. So think about all the different ways that our society has been frayed by, pushed by, distorted by Facebook. We have nothing to complain about compared to what people in Myanmar are encountering right now. And not coincidentally, in Myanmar, we see genocide. We see the frayings of the possibility of this gestational democracy. Right? We thought five years ago that democracy was gonna take hold in Myanmar and it would be the greatest story of the last two decades. It turns out not so much, right? And we see similar dynamics playing out in other parts of the world where even though there had been other media forms, they've all desiccated as Facebook has taken over everything. Places like Sri Lanka, places like the Philippines, Indonesia, Cambodia, Kenya, Nigeria. These are the places where the action is, right? So as, again, as much as we think we are suffering, Nothing, nothing compared to the rest of the world. So it's really telling because these are generally communities and countries where they sort of got the pure distilled, like the, you know, the, the, the crack cocaine version of Facebook, right? Like sort of handed to them without the general, they didn't get the, 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 the frog being boiled gradually over time. They're like, we're dropping you in the deep end. You're going to get there's this. No right? and, there's no counter right? narrative. Yeah. Right. And, and so that you go from media poor or less, te you know, technolo technologically fluent directly into the hyper-optimized version of this social media, and you get repeatedly mass violence. Not, oh, this is fake news, but people are killing each other. You know, we've, we've been able I, I to reproduce to themselves. Here in the United States, we've experienced mass violence as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps not as directly attributed to one company, mm -hmm. but certainly amplified by many of the dynamics that um, are sort of central to what Facebook does. And, um, and it, so it's not like the world's immune to it, but again, like as horrible as things have been, they could be worse and they could get worse. So if you wanna know where we're going, look at Brazil, right? Look at India, because that's where you're starting to see media ecosystems that more, like, more resembled ours really shift into uh, Facebook only or an Instagram only or a Facebook major uh, or WhatsApp major um, uh, environment. Right. So I feel like a lot of us who look at technology deeply are like, it's going to get worse, right? Which is a very, you know, it's a cheery message. But there's also this sort of thread of, of optimism and context. And, and, and one of the things that, um, two things that really jumped out, I think, was we were getting ready for this conversation. One was uh, there is another internet that has existed and did exist before all these tools. And, and so much of the perspective of what you all talk about is a little bit of history which, you know, I think as we record this, most of the people in the room are old enough to remember this, but there was a time before we were all on Facebook, and there was a time before even maybe some of us, before we had internet access, and um, certainly before smartphones. I don't think we have anybody who's 12 years old in here. And so, you know, there's a very um, recent bias to this, where we're like, this almost, the world that we're in is the world we've always had, but, it, but we can, if we squint our minds, remember back to a time before this, the other sort of uh, really interesting thing that jumped out as we prepared for this conversation was that, Siva, you are now teaching Sarah's book for your upcoming class. It's an excellent book. It's called right. Behind the Screen. Yeah. Get, get, get the plug in. Like I said, we'll have all the links, but get, get, get the plug in. But, but I'm curious about why is that a framework that you think we should be teaching? And then obviously, Sarah, sure, I want sure. you to sort of pick up the baton. Well, look, Sarah decided uh, many years ago before anybody else caught on that something interesting was going on. The, the, these companies, uh, Facebook and Google being the most prominent of them, um, were interested in making sure that 
garbage doesn't show up in their platform very much. The obvious example is pornography, right? Google and its subsidiary YouTube has never wanted to offer easy access to pornography because that ruins the experience for most people, right? You, you, you would not have a level of comfort and faith in how you interact with Google if every search you did came up with some pornography site or multiple pornography sites, and given the number of, number of double entendres in the English language, that's entirely possible, right? So, so they've been for a couple of decades now hiring, I'm sorry, outsourcing the job of, uh, of filtering what in many cases is an easy call, right? So if someone is torturing an animal, someone is um, uh, committing a, a, an obvious sex act, um, you know, it's in these com companies' interest to not have that easily available or available at all. Well, who's gonna do this work? Are these companies uh, centered in this place that uh, is incredibly expensive to live um, and, and people demand a fairly high wage, gonna hire people in, inside their company and give them access to their cafeteria and their massages and have them do this most horrible of jobs and pay them six figures? Maybe that would be nice. That's not what happened. Sarah tells the story of what happens when they decide to make this someone else's problem, literally in every way, both by outsourcing it to another company and by putting these workers through really debilitating experiences. But it goes beyond that because it goes to all of the questions we should be asking about what the responsibilities are of these companies and of companies in general. So I want to I pause you yeah. there because I want to hear Sarah talk about that. You know what that work entails. Um, boy, if if my trip uh, needed to be made in any way, that just did it. <laughs> Let me tell you. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, to kind of draw out on on something you were uh, you were saying to contextualize my work, uh, I think, and I think all of us uh, have this uh, going on to a certain extent. There is a tendency in Silicon Valley to be not only ahistorical, but I might even say anti-historical, uh, to, to live in a, inside of a mythology that pretends that everything has um, sort of organically developed for the first time in whatever iteration. It's always of, the beginning of history. Uh, right, whatever yeah. iteration of, of the product it is. Uh, and what, what I endeavored to do in the book in so many ways was to show uh, this ecosystem that you've described and its its implications for all of us, but also to remind us and to contextualize these platforms as actually being very, very recent phenomena. We're talking about two decades max uh, that these uh, particular companies and their products have really come to dominate and stand in for what we call the internet. And I think what's interesting about all of us, if I may speak for us on the stage, is that this isn't a group of people who are against technology, hate the internet, don't like media. It's actually quite the opposite. Uh, we cut our teeth on a nascent internet, most of us, that looked really different from the closed, enclosed ecosystem that is so highly profitable and commercialized today. And so, the story of the workers who clean up uh, social media sites, I think, really directly connects to a, a, another way, another version of the internet. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, this isn't a Pollyanna kind of story about how great it was. There were trolls. There were all kinds of. There was all kinds of nonsense going on, but uh, but the the scale was different. The um, the the. <laughs> 
I think the, the impact was different. And the harms the couldn't be as broad yeah, because the platforms yeah, didn't have billions yeah, of people on them. Correct. And you know what? I'm here to say maybe it might not be a good idea to do that. <laughs> right? I think some other folks have yeah. that thought too. Right? I, I, I actually was just thinking about this, Charlton, with like so much of the research you've done are these communities that were vibrant and thriving and meaningful to people. These weren't these weren't like some, you know, one off sort of thing. But that that narrative goes away because they simply didn't have a billion people on them. Right. Like, what are, what are, what are some of the like you think about like some of the communities that you have, you know, been able to provide, you know, evidence of and documentation mm -hmm. of? Like, what are some of the ones that jump out that are stories that people don't know? Well, you know, one I will highlight is uh, this thing that was called the AfroNet, and I'll put that out there because it was built by a guy named Ken Onwar who lives here in Austin, Texas now. Uh, built it when he was at University of California, San Diego. And the AfroNet was simply a network of uh, all black folks that were distributed across the country, but it was a network built for them to connect. So it was still a, a kind of internet in that we did not, and people did not necessarily know they weren't in the same geographical place, but there was an underlying ethic of care, concern, connection that drove the technology, and it wasn't about the fetishizing of that technology per se. It was what could... What could what, you do with it? What could you do with it? Mm -hmm. And what I could do with it was reach out, if I'm in a community where there are not a lot of people like me, or people that understand what it is and how I'm living, I could find that person. If I wanted to look for a different you know, love interest, there was some possibility. I could get my car and drive out to California from Texas if I met the right, right, right person. Um, <laughs> but again, it was about the people, and I think that was, to come back to Sarah's book, and I told her before this that I had just finished reading the book, and it was so horribly impactful because of the underlying disregard, I think, for people um, that was represented in the workers that are uh, driven to do this work. But also those communities still echo into current culture and current moments, right? They're the, the best things that we see online, you know, I, you, we talk about something like Black Twitter, which is so culturally generative, has these, these you know, this history and these roots in these early communities. I, one of the standout moments to me that was totally surprising and really exciting as, as a geek of a certain age was, uh, you know, Solange, when she dropped her last record, did it on Black Planet. Right, and this was a this is a site that gets overlooked. Asian Avenue, Black Planet. There was a whole cohort of identity-based communities in the early days of social, but it's not it's not a hundred years ago. It's like fifteen right. years right. ago. Exactly. Like the people are still, you know what I mean? Like it's not like you have to get like you know a stone tablet to see where they were. <laughs> but but you know you have somebody who's a very vital artist who bridges a lot of really interesting communities, and she wanted to evoke what that community meant. Like, what do you think that signified? What is she calling back to there? I mean, I think she's calling back to, you know, here's, I, I want to find my people, which, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard to do when you have platforms and an internet now that is just so beyond scale. Um, and I want to find the people who I know have my back, who understand, it may not be that they agree with me necessarily, but we, you know, we got each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's what uh, that really represents. And to, to, to think about something that goes into a community that is not always fraught with kind of battle and conflict, but uh, as my friend Andre Brock likes to tell about, just pure joy. Like, yeah. I can get pleasure mm -hmm. 
in this platform by being with my people and not having the conversation of proving our value, our worth. Mm-hmm. Um, but or defending being, against trolls and attacks or whatever harms are coming out there too. Exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting because I, I, I think of that example of somebody at Solange where like we don't think of celebrities, we don't think of artists as having been exploring the early internet, right? But it was pretty common. There were millions of people there. Yeah. It wasn't that wild. Like yeah. People were there. And, and, and Solange is maybe like alpha millennial, right? Like sort of like this is a definer of this culture. And you spent a ton of time thinking about um, celebrity and about millennial culture. And I'm curious about that fluency of, you know, growing up with this and also seeing it evolve. Like is that, is that widely understood? Do you feel like that's been erased by this sort of modern era of social platforms? I mean, everything now is so immediate that like you, you can know about every artist, like you can find spot, like every artist is accessible to you on Spotify all the time, which actually creates this overwhelming uh, <laughs> amount of information. Yeah. Yeah. Anxiety. Choice, well, so it's anxiety, yeah. right? Yeah. Because, it, and also no real way to cultivate taste. Like the way I cultivated taste was either by like, you know, through the, the spare amount of CDs that my parents had, um, and then maybe some friends, but then also finding that one thing in the record store that you would dare to spend $17 on mm-hmm. if you hadn't heard the whole thing, right? It was a right? big bet, yeah. It was a big yeah. bet. But then the things that you wagered on and that you fell in love with, like those became incredibly pivotal pivotal things. And that's not to say that like Solange doesn't mean the same to a 17-year-old now as Fiona Apple meant to me when I was 17. But it did, it did feel more like a cultivation of taste. But I do want to go back to something we were talking about earlier, which like when I was, I'm, I just finished the draft for my burnout book. And the thing that I found myself wanting to s- finish every single chapter with, there's two phrases. It was, it doesn't have to be this way. And I don't know how to make you care about other people. Right? which is something that goes around Twitter sometimes in reference to political things, which is, you know, in order to understand why this matters and why people are mad about it, you have to understand why it matters to care about other people. And that mean other pe- means other people laboring under capitalism, you know? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so th- that's such a, it's an interesting framing, right? Because I, I think there's a, there's a tension between that reminder or assertion, we've got to care about other people, and the lived experience I think so many of us have had where the internet was where there were people that cared about me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Like, I, I think, you know, I've certainly had that experience where, when, whatever, when I was broke or I didn't know, I moved to New York City and I didn't know anybody, I could find people online and then form a community. And I'm curious, you know, is that a thing that a, you know, a modern startup-based tech platform even aspires to? Is that a goal? Yeah, so if Mark Zuckerberg were hitting, sitting with us right now, he would totally agree with the major themes that we've outlined here. He has shifted his vision and his de- definition of the purpose of Facebook from connecting people, which turned out to not always have positive repercussions, to building community, a word he does not understand in the least, right? But, and he's also convinced that we build community. No, he's convinced that he builds community by designing his code in a certain way, designing the interface in a certain way, um, uh, nudging us toward his uh, capital F, capital G Facebook groups, uh, and then letting us loose within these Facebook groups, letting us loose within WhatsApp groups, letting us 
form more communities through Instagram and, and, and ultimately living our communities through his platform. What he doesn't want to acknowledge is we were already doing that, right? So if you look at Charlton's work, you look at Annie's work, that's what we were doing and, and getting really good at it before he came along with his universalizing grand vision of how he was gonna structure our lives. And every one of his statements is top down. Every one of his statements is, I will build this so that you behave a certain way. This it's sort of a paternalistic view. Exactly. Too. Like, I'm gonna give I mean, you he would solution. never admit to being paternalistic, but he is fundamentally paternalistic in the way a master engineer is. The, the other thing that the move towards um, pushing people into self-selected or uh, quote-unquote groups is that it... it or is, algorithmically selected yes, groups. Yes, correct. Um, yeah. Nudged groups is that uh, I think there's a fundamental desire to lessen the responsibility that the platform has to govern content. And so it's, it's, a, it's a downloading of that responsibility on, say, the person who decides to be the moderator of that group. Um, or it, it's, a, it's a mechanism by which uh, a company might conceivably say, gosh, you don't want us to monitor your private dialogue, so we don't know what was flowing through uh, that WhatsApp group, for example. Um, because the problem of managing content is already so far beyond their ability to handle it, um, these, you know, to me, these are mechanisms and 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 turns that uh, get them out of that business even even more than they uh, they are out of it to a certain extent. Now they're both out and in. It's very odd. So the algorithm is like a, a mechanism of abdicating responsibility. It's not our fault because we've used this as our name. But they make the algorithm. Right. right. So like it's still but it's ultimately just is. Math. Right, right. But no, their 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 argument right. Right. their argument yeah. is right. the math did this thing. I don't know how it happens. Right. Like who can say? And yet it caused they they, they wrote the code, right? I mean, I, I guess I, I often come back to kind of your point at the end of the day, which is um, to what extent was it ever a good idea to uh, render the the gamut of human expression uh, into a, tech, a technological system that is uh, taking it a step further made for profit and advertising in the first place. Like what a limited worldview that is, right? Uh, to, to put everything inside that frame. And so I think one of the things that we need to do for our students, those of us who teach, or for our our constituencies and we're talking to people is to remind everyone about the capacity of our own imagination to think about other ways. Mm -hmm. um, this, this has sort of been presented to us over the past 15 years as the way to do it. Uh, folks have been incredibly successful. Obviously, they've gotten people uh, across the globe engaged in their systems, but 15 years is, is a very short time. For this, and, this amount of change. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think uh, that's actually Again, when I look for those rays of light or, or hopefulness, I think that's, a, that's actually a very quick uh, t time for humanity in terms of rethinking or creating something new that could take hold or reinvigorating institutions that already exist that we've let uh, fester and die in the face of some of these other platforms. Facebook has 2.4 billion users around the world. In the United States, it has 220 million users, right? So if uh, everyone in this room quit Facebook right now, no one at Facebook would notice or care. If 100,000 Americans quit Facebook today, it might cause a meeting, right? But, uh, but no one's gonna change anything. <laughs> because in the same time- That's the punishment they deserve, right, a meeting. 100,000 yeah. people in Brazil are gonna join, right? So, so uh, they know where, where the growth is and why, and they have such a penetration. 
uh, in the world in such a level of dependence right now that there's not much that we can do even in a quasi-organized fashion. Google the same way. Nearly two billion people use YouTube. Can you imagine? I mean, living without Google is tough enough. Living without YouTube is not that much easier, right? There's a lot of basic cultural, political uh, experience and information that now, unfortunately, is rendered only through YouTube. And it's because we let this happen. Uh, and there's not much we can do to strike back against it in the short term. But it, I mean, it's kind of like how people want to drop out of capitalism, right? Like, you can, like, I would love to drop out of capitalism, but this is going to continue even if Bernie Sanders is elected, like it's still going to be the animating. First step is you gotta bring 100 million of your friends with you, right? <laughs> yes. That's. But, so what do you do? You stay within it, but you try to change it. And there's, I mean, I think there is some hubris in the whole, let me opt out, let me boycott, right. and so forth, because you that's be, a privilege for some yeah. of us, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the you gotta be in pretty good shape to not be online. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's not the experience for you know, immigrant communities or right. you know, many others. I mean, I think the, the evidence is pretty telling when we find out who some of the biggest advocates for opting out of screens right. are. They're located where? Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, that tells us something about what they think of their own products and, and the, the cost to, uh, to, to using them. Um, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's gotta be a longer game. We've become accustomed to short-term gains and quick turnarounds and, and a very fast innovation. Uh, one, of the th one of the things that really rankles me uh, these days is that the CEO of YouTube, Susan Wojcicki, goes around the country saying YouTube is a library. Yes. Um, oh I'm gonna tell you what YouTube is not. It is not a library. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start by saying it's missing something that libraries have, which is li librarians, <laughs> okay? Which, which are people with expertise who can help guide others who need information. Uh, and that fundamental uh, misunderstanding, or I think misrepresentation is a more accurate way to put it, uh, really bothers me because this company is trading on one of the very best things that we've collectively built in our society, which is a public institution open to all for free designed to pr provide information. Um, I don't think they should get to trade on that like that. Uh, they don't really agree with me necessarily. I was on the phone one time with someone from YouTube and I got really animated and said, you owe it to society to blah, 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 and they didn't call me back. So um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, it's a good way to not get called back. Yeah, it's cool. I just, I had, I mean, you know, we, the public has a desire to be informed. The public has a desire to seek information. Uh, they have a right to do those things. But what we've done is uh, decimated our public school system, our public institutions. Um, we've eliminated even just public space in general. And it's not that people have uh, decreased in their desire to want to be informed or just to stay connected. It's just that they've been shoved into, uh, from these public spaces into what is essentially a shopping mall that then goes around and masquerades as if it isn't. And I think that is a real social problem that we have to address. And we know there are costs to that. Well, there's a part of this too where you talk about you know, humans have a desire, people have a desire to learn, 
they also have a desire to share their knowledge. That's right. Right, like it feels good. We're like, I, I figured this thing out, and I want people to know. Right? Well, they, actually, yeah. well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's the mansplainer version yeah. of it, but I think there's also the like, you know what? I sussed out how to get this mm -hmm. thing working, or or whatever, or I mastered this trick on my skateboard, or whatever yeah. it is. That's this feeling of. Like I learned something and I shared it and I'm proud of it or I want to represent my culture or my people or whatever it is that is this this impulse. It's very, very human impulse. And to your point about the public institutions, there's no public school in America that doesn't rely on face on YouTube, is there? I mean, every single one has got to be showing YouTube well, they, videos. And they rely heavily on Facebook for events. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, you know, do. that's how they post yeah. to right. you, know, you have to and, be part of that. And we didn't we haven't had that before of a commercial entity that our public institutions were dependent on. Every politician is dependent on social media to fundraise and do these things. Yeah, I want to go back, Charlton, to one of these sort of earlier themes that was just hit, which was um, the, the almost the migration of communities, like this sort of evolution that happens. And I think of a lot of marginalized communities, whether it is like the black experience and the great migration, I think of a lot of Asian immigrants where we have a sort of community by community, almost a seeding of like, you know, Obviously, like for me being South Asian, like Patel Motels, where they sort of like get your foot in the ground and go to the next town, or you know, Chinese restaurants that had this too for like sort of Chinese immigrants. But there's this sense of like somebody gets a foothold, we'll bring our family in, we'll bring along the community, we'll help each other, lift each other up. Like, are we seeing that behavior anywhere online? Are people putting out those feelers of like, let's take a first tentative step out of the current era, out of YouTube, out of Facebook? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I don't see it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in many ways connected to just the power of the platform. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's hard to find something else to leverage uh, that much visibility, mm -hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> so, I, you know, I think it's been more of a case, at least in my point of view, that folks are using those platforms and doing this migration through those. And so, you know, Black Twitter could be uh, just a very good example. And it's one place where you look, and especially the early days when we started to know about what Black Twitter is and so mm -hmm. forth, there was a, you look there and you see that there was a level of ingenuity, expertise, et cetera, that didn't start in Twitter, mm -mm. right? Right. And that's what first got me kind of looking back because that was, that was the migration. That was the, the, the migration of people who uh, in other generations were dealing with, here's a technology, how do I use it to make me and my life and my community better? And I'm gonna do it here, and that might be foreclosed on, and where do I go next? And then it's here, but I'm building up that expertise, meaning I know how to connect my people, whoever those people are, mm -hmm. and this becomes an iteration of that. So there's something extraordinary there, which is about the mastery of a platform being separate from the creators of the platform, right? So historically, if you create something world-changing, it's like directly about empowering you and your family, right? Yep. And that's a very different thing where Twitter has no black founders, Facebook has no black founders, yet consistently, you know, you look at sort of the peak era of Vine a couple years ago on Twitter, or you look at, you know, black Twitter every single day, or, or even movements like Black Lives Matter, these are happening on these platforms, and you know, like I don't, I don't think Jack Dorsey is against Black Lives Matter happening on Twitter, but he certainly wasn't like that's why that's we made it. They, exactly. You know what I mean? That wasn't <laughs> what he had in mind. <laughs> right. Well, and 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 but also they did learn from prior art, right? There was a lot of different communities contributing to. But the, the reason I mention this is I'm curious about this sort of, 
you know, I sort of had this very, you know, these are the master's tools, right? There's a sort of very uh, set, uh, defined set of expectations around what a technology could enable. And we still see surprising things happen, whether it is Black Lives Matter, Me Too, movements that arise that the platforms didn't expect that are positive, mm -hmm. but they certainly weren't trying to enable. Right. Right? Yep. Like, how is that happening? How, how is that possible? Because that confounds, that complicates my view of like, either people build a platform to give themselves power, or they build a platform, community builds a platform to give everybody power. But the idea of like, and we empower these other people accidentally, <laughs> how, do, how did that happen? I mean, I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's the, it's the history of certainly this country, right? <laughs> I mean, it is, you think about uh, slaves who at some point became free, um, and that freedom wasn't just, uh, you know, you graciously granted my freedom. We fought for it, and we killed for it, and we died for it, right? Because there was something that was driving that. So I took, um, and uh, her name is blanking on me now, I can't uh, um, Dark Matters. Um, Simone Brown. Simone Brown uh, talks beautifully in that book mm. about the old technologies that were used to free other people. Mm. And I think as we've gone through this historical trajectory, um, it's just become the way, I mean, we know we don't have the tools, or at least historically we have not as a, a community uh, of black folks, folks of color, etc. Um, so you build a way of life, which is I have to survive. Let me repurpose I have to thrive. I'm going to repurpose, and I'm going to take whatever you give me, and I'm going to find a way to do what it is I have to do. I mean, for me, this is a this is an exemplar of the problem of narrative with Silicon Valley. Uh, that I didn't go to college, so you're going to have to take that down. Well, what, the, the narrative of um, of the technology mm. having this the 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 primacy of, mm -hmm. of the story. Right. It's not the, it's not the code. It's right. The it's yeah. actually yeah. this ingenuity and innovation that comes from often oppressed and marginalized people. That it, that should be the story right. uh, rather than um, or, or at least it should have parity with with the the product or the architecture of the platform mm. uh, because I often think about these platforms without our, our contributions they would just be empty vessels mm. uh, they are they're reflections of what we put into them uh, good the good and the bad yeah I, I think about this where um, you know my life was changed by social media and by having tools to use, and I was able to meet all of you and to you know get to be on a stage and do all these exciting things. And but Mark Zuckerberg would have been pretty rich regardless, I think. Like he was already in Harvard, like he was fine, right? And so he didn't say social media. I mean, it opened the door for him to be a billionaire, but he's not like I made all my friends there mm. online. He didn't say I found this great meme and I thought that was funny and it brightened my day. <laughs> Like all the things that I think bring us joy online, or I got to organize and be part of a, a movement, none of that's his experience, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, is that, is that just simply the, the, like, well, this tool wasn't designed for us, but we're gonna put it to our use? Or is there, is there some truth to this, this narrative about technology, which is it can empower people? It does let people, you know, reach their higher selves or be their best selves or change the world or, whatever the rhetoric is that we hear. Do you think he knows how to make a meme? 
I, I'm sure he has analyzed how memes are created <laughs> and, and, and is like, I can make a tool for this. I'm certain that's happened. Yeah. I don't think he does it for fun. Well, I think, I mean, I think, of course, there, there are so many positives that come out of um, one's own personal experience and then an aggregate. But I don't think we, we sh I, I want to be cautious about handing the credit for that over, mm -hmm. over to, to firms. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of that is, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the sum total of humanity, and they don't get to mm -hmm. uh, actually take credit for that. So I had my concerned. fifth birthday party at a McDonald's, but it wasn't McDonald's credit that I had fun yeah. at the party. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. We also have a, a weird relationship with a lot of the things in our lives and a lot of the processes and platforms and technologies in our lives. So my, I love my car. I have a blast in my car. It does exactly what I want it to do. It takes me everywhere that I want to go. Serves me well. Rarely lets me down. My car is great for me. I have a story I could tell you about my car. I have a story I could tell you about other people I know and their cars and how much better our lives are because of our cars. But you take it to the scale of the globe and our cars are terrible for us. Yeah. Car's great for me, it's terrible for us. Right? That seems paradoxical, it's really not because at scale everything gets distorted. Right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I have a great story as you have a great story as we all have a great story about the richness added to our lives. Uh, because of this really convenient way to connect with people, really convenient way to share all sorts of cultural objects and convenient ways to uh, gather people in the same room, right? We all have that story, but collectively it's been a disaster. Yeah. And it's been a disaster unevenly. Mm -hmm. So we're all the winners, even as critical as we are. We're doing just fine with this because we kind of figure out how to live well with it, mm -hmm. right? Um, but there are lots of people and lots of places in the world where it has been a complete and utter disaster, despite the fact that individually almost everybody sees value in it, or they wouldn't be there, right? There, it's, there are not 2.4 billion idiots and fools out there right. on Facebook, right? <laughs> That's right? They all find value in it, and it grows every day because people find value in it individually. But again, collectively, it becomes a disaster. I mean, I think that... Uh, we have to think about platforms and these firms as being as dynamic as every other for, force or system, yeah. right? So that they have absolutely uh, changed and morphed over this period of time. And I would argue that we're in a moment where uh, the functionality arms race of platform to platform has largely subsided for mm -hmm. the major firms. They're, they yeah. are what they are. They're going to. They can add. all take a picture. You yeah. can all have a yeah, filter. Yeah, you can do. Yeah, you yeah. can live stream on all of them. Wasn't that a great idea? Um, <laughs> you, you know. Uh, so, so they've kind of hit peak functionality. Where the where the bread is being buttered is on the policy side, and what's going on with with companies like Facebook and and others uh, right now is that you're seeing them engage at a nation state level. Okay, mm -hmm. so we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the technology and the platform, but really we ought to be thinking about policy mm -hmm. and we ought to be thinking about governance. And this is where the, the companies are going now. This is where they are. They have a seat at the table with, with the heads of state. Uh, they're put, putting together Supreme Courts. Uh, their systems mm -hmm. are looking more and more like what we might recognize as a country right. or Quasi -governmental. as a nation, right? Yeah. And that is uh, that that evolution is is really something to behold, and that's and that's unprecedented to both have that that governmental function, but as well as the governmental budget. Oh, 
except right. for the British East India Company and the mm. Dutch East India Company, yeah. which were quasi-governmental, <laughs> also yep. global in scale and in reach, and also massively destructive. Yeah. Well, we know how that one turned out a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about, and, and this actually gets to this point, I think, sort of this theme, which is, and I, I think, Charlton, you said this, the, the, you take the technology and you use it. And, you know, my family's lived experience uh, when I would visit my grandparents in India when I was a kid is they had a printing press upstairs. And, you know, when I got old enough, I said, what are we doing with that? And this, that's how we printed flyers and posters in the independence movement, right? Which was the legacy of things like the, the East India Company, right? And it was cutting edge technology for sharing information peer to peer between people uh, in the service of liberation. Uh, that was not why that tool was invented. That was probably not even what the intent was of whoever sold it to them. Hmm. Um, I'm curious going forward, and this is sort of a closing question for each of you. What are the ways we can empower ourselves? Like we've said, it's not going to be a mass consumer walkout. We can't unplug. These are going to be parts of our lives for the rest of our lives. What are the things we can do? What are the tractable things we can do? Whether it's policy, whether it's using other tools, other technologies. See if I'd start with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things we've done today and that each of us have done in our work is demystify these systems. Uh, so we see the human hands at work and we see both the human cost and the human flourishing going on through these systems. The more we can see people behind our screens, the better off we will be individually and collectively, the smarter choices we will make we won't just accept the new thing as if it's uh, some magic force um, you know, uh, brought down on us, right? Give, given to us. Uh, that's number one. So, so yeah, demystification, which is a constant cultural and intellectual effort, because um, the stuff, right? These boxes that we look through are meant to look magical. They're not meant to show the human beings that went into it and the human beings still working in there, right? So that's one thing. And the other thing we have to do is understand that there is ideology to technological change and that ideology is basically techno-fundamentalism, this notion that there is a problem in the world, uh, a, a, a technology has either amplified it or con contributed to it or maybe even caused it, and the best and perhaps only way to address it is to invent a new thing. Right? A new technology to solve the problem of the old technology. That's, that's techno-fundamentalism. We see it time and time again. We have to get off of that, that uh, hamster wheel. It's a disaster, and it's, it's creating more problems than it's solving. Uh, we need a better vocabulary for how we talk and think about this. At least that's the start, and I think that's what we're all really contributing it to, contributing to it right now. I don't have a list of legislation I would like to see passed. I, I have a bunch of wishes that you know, if I could uh, you know, have a, a long conversation with some of these company leaders, I might wish them to do things. But again, that's, that's dreaming. That's not really helpful. But ultimately, we need to reorient our, our relationship with these devices and with the messages that we get um, uh, uh, from these centers of power. Um, and then that's, that's the first step. But the, I, I hesitate to prescribe because I think we need to unleash the imagination of a lot more people who are smarter than we are to, to, to address these problems. Yeah, I think about it in terms of controls on the production side and controls on the reception side. So on the production side, I think just like 
understanding that it, at various points in our history, which again, t like Silicon Valley doesn't like to think of history, but when capitalism has, like capitalism just in an oven of itself, it wants to go wild. Like it wants to just like exploit as many people, as much of our environment as possible. The only way we've made it work at various points historically in the least exploitative way possible is through regulation. So we have to understand that regulation is not tampering the capitalist spirit, it's just making capitalism livable. And then on the reception side, the most useful book for me has been Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, um, which I really can't recommend enough. The book, or the title is somewhat misleading because it's not so much about how to do nothing so much as how to understand and harness your attention. And she is not a Luddite. She does not say, you know, get rid of your phone, she just says, Think about your attention as something you have control over instead of these companies. So I can't recommend that highly enough. I would say a couple of things. Um, number one, that we need to make demands, right? We do our work, we live, we do all these things on these platforms. We need to make demands of those platforms. Um, and I spent yesterday at a uh, an interesting gathering of uh, civil rights and tech, which was uh, sponsored by uh, Color of Change and uh, Facebook. Um, and I won't go into the interesting, interesting uh, parts of it. Other than to say, there were great moments where folks were standing up and saying, look, we know about civil rights. We know about what it takes to make political change. And I know, Facebook, you're sitting in that front row. This is what you must do. This is what we demand you do. And we're going to stay up in your face until yeah. you do it. Um, so I think we got to do that. And then I think finding a way to harness, let work the ingenuity of marginalized people. Um, and so I, you know, I'll end with the story uh, kind of like we, we began with, and I was thinking about being a blown away meeting a guy named E. David Ellington, um, who was the founder uh, in 1994 of a uh, platform called Net Noir, which was the first um, hub community within AOL's uh, sort of uh, garden. And what I took from that was there was a moment, and there's a story that he narrates um, with the head of AOL and saying, look, here's my idea. People like black people, people like black content. Let's make that the way to bring people onto the internet. And you know what? It worked. It's incredibly uh, innovative. Incredibly. Yeah. So I think, you know, ways to just put people in a room and let them go and to fund and support and say, look, you know what you want, you know how to get what you want, you innovate. Um, let me support and uh, uh, make that happen. Sarah? Well, I, I think I'll just echo what everyone already said by, by reiterating that we need um, demystification, we need dialogue such as this, this event today and others, we need, um, we need to make demands and, and harness and remember our own agency we need to historicize and uh, contextualize what's actually going on. And we need to strengthen public institutions. Um, and, and I think it's going to be a long game. I think it's going to take a lot of different kinds of uh, endeavors. 
but we know that the status quo is not sustainable on so many fronts. And, and we do actually have these moments of incredible opportunity to do all the things we've talked about. And so I, I have to be hopeful, because what else can we be, right? <laughs> well, I think on that note of uh, a little bit of hope and optimism amidst all of the uh, challenges we've identified, uh, it makes me feel like there may be a way forward with an internet that is worthy of us that perhaps we could trust. Uh, I thank you all so much for joining for this conversation. Thank you. As you can see, all four of these scholars that we had on stage bring a perspective that everybody needs to hear. That's it for our special bonus episode of Function, recorded live at the Texas Tribune Festival. Stay subscribed because we're going to have more of these kinds of special episodes and bonuses coming up for you soon. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our producer at Glitch is Keisha T.K. Dutes. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland, and a thank you to the engineering team at Vox. A huge thanks to everybody on our team at Glitch, and you can follow me on Twitter at Eddie Dash. You can also follow this show itself on Twitter at Podcast Function. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts, and do check out glitch.com slash function. That's where the show lives, and we have full text transcripts for every single episode. We even have apps and other things you can check out that help you understand the topics we discuss.